It's a business she started from scratch. Starting from scratch You can't see the destination Starting from scratch And at first, it didn't work out. Then, a website reboot quadrupled the business. About a year and a half in, I felt, this is good. This is where I want my website to be. And a friend of mine who's a web designer came up to me and told me, no offense, but your website is not good at all. (laughs) Of course, because he's a web designer. But he said, no, the presence that you're putting out there into the world isn't reflecting the level of service that you're offering. So good sales pitch for him because I ended up hiring him and he did my website over. Two months after my site launched, my business quintupled. Managing a lawsuit on the cloud when you're not even a lawyer. We strive to keep top of mind. When someone has a litigation, the first person they want to call is Clarilegal. And we're going to help them out. We're going to find them the best vendor for the best price and the best value, and they're going to have a successful outcome. Video games that are fun for the kids and help keep them healthy. Parents think about their kids all the time. It's the same thing. You're always thinking about what can I do to make it better? How can I get revenue faster? How can I get to the next round? How can I expand? How can I scale? I think it's worth taking the risk and the cut pay and salary to do what you love. This is the language of business. A weekly podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at businesses starting from scratch with a new idea that winds up working. Here's our host, Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again is easy, right? But does that work in business? Janine O'Neill is founder of JO Social Branding, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks for having me, Greg. Your company almost failed. How did you save yourself? Well, in the very beginning, I was just doing everything I possibly could do to get my name out there. So actually, when I told a friend of the family that I was going to be launching my business, he said, be ready to just hit the pavement hard and knock on doors and do everything that you can. So I was. I was blogging twice a week. I was speaking for free at local organizations and communities around the area. I was teaching at the local community college. I mean, any way that I could show who I was and what I was about and to bring clients in. And then I was on all the social media media channels as well. And I just felt like I was hitting this wall, like I was doing everything that I possibly could, but there was a disconnect that was happening and I didn't know what it was. How did you then save everything and then quadruple in size? (laughs) Well, what had happened was I had built my own website because I didn't want to hire a web designer. I didn't have the money to hire a web designer, but I knew I needed a presence. So I'm pretty tech savvy and I thought I can build a website. I can train myself on WordPress. I can do this. I wasn't using professional headshots because once again, I couldn't hire a photographer and um, had pictures of my own network that I was just using. So what ended up happening was about a year and a half in, I felt, this is good. This is where I want my website to be. And a friend of mine who's a web designer came up to me and told me, no offense, but your website is not good at all. (laughs) Of course, because he's a web designer. But he said, no, the presence that you're putting out there into the world isn't reflecting the level of service that you're offering. And that really made me open my eyes thinking, oh my gosh, I need a website. So good sales pitch for him because I ended up hiring him and he did my website over. I hired a professional photographer because I figured at that point we're going to go all in with it. And two months after my site launched, my business quintupled. So that was the missing link. I had been putting my name out there in every way that I possibly could, but I was in some ways putting the wrong brand message or branding on my website. Are you concerned this could happen again? 
I don't think so because that was a big lesson that I learned, but I've taken those lessons and I've applied it to my own clients and the people that I work with and helping them make sure that their branding and their marketing and their social media is properly saying who they are, what they're about, and how they can help their clients. Who are some of your current clients? So I actually have a real estate team that I was working with and it's a brother and sister-in-law team. When I first met with them, they told me that they have this dog, it's a ceramic dog outside of their office that they dress up. And they thought it was really funny, but people really responded well to this. What ended up happening was the dog was dog nap, which is a little concerning for me because it's become this brand mascot. And we just went on social media. We went on their Facebook page and asked the audience if they had seen Dottie around. The post was shared 392 times and reached 18,000 people. This real estate team has less than 300 people on their page, so it really kind of took this viral effect. And the dog was returned. Three days later, we believe by the people that stole it. So we did a Facebook Live video, and that video reached 10,000 people and had 5,000 views. And we just simply thanked everybody for returning the dog. The next week, they got two listings on the market that equaled $1.4 million combined, which doubled their current listing. So just being in tune with their marketing and knowing how to work it worked really well for them. Any other examples? So the other client that I have is a hotel and they are not a new client, they're not a new business, they've been around for about 30 years and they had a new hotel move into town. So there was, they were getting a lot of attention, there was a lot of media that were following up on them and everybody in town was excited for this year-round hotel and this hotel that I'm working with was seasonal. So they hired me with their email and social media and they knew who their clientele was. There was women between the ages of 45 and 55 that were booking to stay. They wanted a younger demographic so that they could extend their, the life of their business. I got them on Instagram because I knew that that's where their audience was and they had a very visual aspect to their business. They were on the ocean, they had a pool, they had a cafe, they had beautiful gardens and I knew that we could represent them on Instagram and reach that audience. And what ended up happening was within 30 days of getting them on Instagram, the analytics and the insights on the back end were showing that they were reaching that audience, the so 25 to 34. Looking back on it, do you think that you shouldn't represent yourself when doing social marketing? If you are not comfortable with it, if you don't like social media, if you have any hesitations about it, then I would hire it out to the expert. So either you know outsource it or bring somebody in in-house that can help you with it because it can be a really painful process, but it's very powerful as well. And everybody should have some sort of presence online. Janine, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Janine O'Neill, founder of JO Social Branding. Coming up, video games that are fun for your kids and help them stay healthy. But first, managing a lawsuit on the cloud when you're not even a lawyer, as the language of business continues. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Everything seems to be on the cloud these days, but is it possible to outsource a lawsuit? Cash Butler has an opinion or two on that subject. He is founder of Clara Legal, and welcome to the language of business. Thanks. Happy to be here. You guys specialize in vendor management. What is that? We manage vendors for large-scale litigation. We match corporations and law firms with the service providers or vendors that they need to do their work. It's challenging in today's environment because it's hard to identify the service providers. It's hard to scope the work. It's not just price, but it's the value of the work that you need to get done so you can pursue your litigation or compliance needs. How do you find the cases? 
We sell. We go into vendors. We sell to corporations, their inside counsel, CFOs. We go to law firms for litigation partners and tell them what we're doing, tell them how we can save money, save time, be more efficient, how there's no infrastructure costs, hence the cloud-based service that we provide. We then go to vendors and they're referred into the community and we vet them thoroughly so then we connect them. And our corporations and law firms can select preferred vendors as a comparator when they're reviewing the blind bids. Why are your services important to general partners of law firms? Well, they're important to law firms, the litigation partners, so that they can reduce the cost of their end client, they can generate more business, be a much of a more of a business partner and a collaborator than just passing through costs. They have a fiduciary obligation to take care of that money that the corporations are spending on litigation. In addition, the corporations, the general counsel, and the CFO are under tremendous pressures to keep costs down. So when they find inefficiencies or a way to do this, they jump on it. So this is a real huge value to both the, the corporations and the law firms, and the vendors get the work. So win, win, win. But you're not selling widgets, and you can't ask somebody to create a lawsuit. How do you optimize your timing? Well, it's always a challenge. Um, but we use marketing. Uh, we, we have content marketing strategy. We're pushing out uh, not just emails, but things that add value to our customers, short bursts. We do some inside sales. Um, it's always good to be at the right place at the right time in any business, let alone this one. We strive to keep top of mind. When someone has a litigation, the first person they want to call is Claire Legal, and we're going to help them out. We're going to find them the best vendor for the best price and the best value, and they're going to have a successful outcome. Before Clara Legal, how was discovery done? by getting on the phone or the yellow pages, the internet, trying to find a vendor that can do your work, maybe calling some buddies and, you know, hey, who'd you lose, lose the last time? But there was no real competition. It's a very fragmented market and murky. We bring transparency, efficiency, standardization to this marketplace. So, you know, vendors can execute the work more efficiently. Buyers, corporations, and law firms get a better price. They save money with efficiencies. Uh, I mean, we've saved people over 50% on a pretty continuous basis of what they had previously been paying. You're not a lawyer. How do you speak the right language? Well, I've been working with lawyers for 15 years now. And actually, my younger brother, Mark, is a managing partner of a law firm as well. So I got some family connections there. But I also hire lawyers you know, they're in the club, so to speak. They can speak the legal lingo. What we're doing is more IT related. It's more technology and process and operations. The lawyering is done by the law firm and the general counsel. We do those things like, you know, collect data off of cell phones or laptops or email servers, contract management databases. We do the technical stuff and then we help, we bring project management structure so that the lawyers can worry about lawyering and we can supply them with what they need when they need it. Is your secret sauce applicable to other industries? This is a business that scales tremendously. I've been contacted for homeowners associations that want to buy plumbers and electricians and gardening people and roofers, and they're generally not professionals at this. So they sit in a board meeting and they have to review reams and reams of paper to try to figure out what's going on. We can make that much more efficient for them. It works for, it could work for business services, it can work for all kinds of stuff. Cash, thank you. Oh, thank you. Cash Butler, founder of Clara Legal. 
still to come, video games that are fun for your kids and help them stay healthy. Next on The Language of Business. Our sponsor is Art Lifting. If you have a small business, or even if you run a Fortune 500 company, you can uplift the look of your office with Art Lifting. Art Lifting has over 1,300 artworks in a variety of styles and prices. You can buy them or rent them and switch them up on a rotation every month or so. But wait, there's more. All of the Art Lifting art is by artists who are homeless or dealing with disabilities. So you not only brighten and uplift your office, you're helping local communities across the USA. To learn more and view the collection, go to artlifting.com. You're listening to the Language of Business look at starting from scratch with a new idea that winds up working. Once again, here's Greg. Thanks, Don. You followed through on your dream of starting your own company, and now it's your sole source of income. Nikita Varani is co-founder and CEO of WSD, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks for having me, Greg. What is WSD? WSD is a startup that believes in gaming for good. We leverage the engaging nature of games to empower people to take ownership of their health and lives. We're creating mobile games to tackle things like asthma, food allergies, and other chronic conditions. Think Pokemon Go, but for chronic conditions, basically. And is this your sole source of income? Yes. And how's that working out for you? It's working out really well for me. I'm a recent graduate from Boston University, so at a young age of 24, I don't have very high costs, and I think it's worth taking the risk and the cut pay and salary to do what you love. You've done a number of internships before co-founding WSD. What did that teach you? I learned leadership skills. I learned the importance of efficient and effective communication, the importance of building a strong team and teamwork. What do you guys talk about every day in your strategic planning meetings? We talk about game design, we talk a lot about engagement, how do we get people to play our games, engage with them, and how do we get them to stay longer. And then secondly, we talk about, most importantly, how we balance knowledge and learning with play and fun. And that's one of the most challenging aspects of making educational games. Is it just you and your co-founder, Sean, in a room or other members of your team present? We have our entire team present for all of our meetings, aside from anything that's super confidential. So we're all part of the discussion, we talk about the game, we talk about how we're making money, we talk about our strategy with pharmaceutical and insurance companies. I like to get everyone's foot in the door and everyone talking about the important things. How much do you rely on your advisors? We rely really heavily on our advisors. They bring a lot of strong contacts, which are hugely beneficial. They bring a lot of knowledge, experience, and I think they help guide us in the right direction. Are they sitting in on those same meetings? They're not sitting on those same meetings, but they're kept up to date on what we're doing. And we have separate meetings that usually only I go to to update them on this quarter is what we've worked on. And this is what we hope to accomplish next quarter. How much time do you spend running the company versus raising money? Depends on the time of year. <laughs> when you're raising money, it's 60-40 with 60 fundraising, 40 company. When you're not raising money, it's still like 60-40 opposite maybe. So you're always keeping in touch with your investors. And how are you going about raising money from investors? Currently, we're going to our same investors for a re-up. We just pivoted our business model, so we're asking for a little more to cover what we need to accomplish to get to our next benchmark goal. And then from there, we will be going to other investors as well. And are you raising money from venture capitalists, convertible notes, or some other method entirely? So far, a convertible note with angel investors going forward probably equity. What are your hopes for the company six to 12 months from now? Six to 12 months from now, I see us being re having revenue, not being profitable, um, having a team of probably four to five people. Right now we're at three. And having at least three to four games out. Right now we have two games.
How will you ultimately consider yourself to be successful? I consider ourselves to be successful on the impact that we can create through our games. So that impact is how we're keeping people, especially children, healthier, how we're improving chronic condition management, and just making people live healthier, happier lives. How much do you rely on focus groups or customer interactions? Heavily. We do play tests when we're working on children's games at four different Boston public schools. We talk to parents pretty occasionally. Every time we have a survey, we'll do Skype interviews. We interact with patients to collect data. You have three people on your team. How do you divide and conquer in terms of the daily tasks? We all have very different skills. My co-founder, Sean, studied computer science at Tufts University, so he leads all our technical aspects, and he also leads all our art and musical aspects since he's an artist at heart. I lead all our business and strategy aspect, fundraising and legal, and then Dylan leads more on game design and intern management for other computer science interns. If you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you're thinking about your company, what is the first thought that goes through your head? Depending on the night, but lately it's been mostly on our strategy and our interactions and relationships with pharmaceutical and how we can shorten the length of time it takes to get revenue. Are you ever able to shut it off at night or on the weekends? No. <laughs> Parents think about their kids all the time. It's the same thing. You're always thinking about, oh, what can I do to make it better? How can I get revenue faster? How can I get to the next round? How can I expand? How can I scale? Nikita, thank you. Thank you. Nikita Varani, co-founder and CEO of Wizzy. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We publish a new episode of The Language of Business every Tuesday. We now have downloads in 47 countries. Welcome to Egypt and Serbia and 33 states plus D.C. We're available wherever you get podcasts. Or just ask Alexa. Searching for latest episode of The Language of Business. Here it is from my past. I have a tuna salad sandwich and an order of french fries, please. No, no tuna. That was easy enough. I'll have a cheeseburger and a small poke. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.